As magical as it can be living in a foreign country, with all of its quirks and traditions, it can also be lonely. And what if, in this new country, you discovered that the world-famous company you were working for was covering something up? Something with potentially dangerous implications. Who would you turn to? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. This week, we're telling the story of Michael Woodford, the man who put his career, reputation, and safety on the line to reveal financial corruption at Olympus, making headlines around the world and changing the face of Japanese business forever. Ah, yes, the magnificent Trolley Sourbright Crawler, also known as Trollicus brightolus. The worm's captivating neon colour makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolley! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. Visit trolley.com to shop now. Trolley, eat me! Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. In November 2010, when Michael Woodford was made president of camera giant Olympus in Tokyo, many people were surprised. The 50-year-old wasn't exactly the obvious choice. He wasn't Japanese, for one thing, which was unusual. And he didn't have an Ivy League or Oxbridge education, either. In fact, he'd come from fairly humble beginnings in the UK. For the first few years of his life, Michael had lived a comfortable, middle-class life in central England. His mother was a homemaker, and his father was a university lecturer with a good salary. But when Michael was seven, his mother left his father, and everything changed. Michael vividly remembered the day they left. His mother had hastily packed up their things while his dad was at work, and they'd boarded a train to Liverpool in the north of England. On the long train journey, his mother had given him a ten-shilling note and told him that if he didn't cry, he could keep it. He'd fought back his tears and kept the money. In Liverpool, Michael and his mom shared a cramped house with his grandparents and great-uncle. They had little money and no bath or shower. They had to use the communal baths down the road. He soon realized that they were poor now, poorer even than their working-class neighbors. For Michael, who had been used to the finer things in life, the change was a blow. At school, with his second-hand uniform and free school lunches, he felt insecure and ashamed. He missed his father and felt the stigma of divorce, which was less common in those days. Michael knew he wasn't like the other boys. He even looked a little different, due to some Tamil heritage on his dad's side. 
He was an easy target for bullies who thought he was strange and stuck up with his upper-class accent and neat haircut. But while these challenges would grind some kids down, over time, Michael discovered an inner resolve. He learned to hold his head high and started plotting his way out of poverty with money-making schemes. He picked wild berries and sold them to his neighbors, rifled through trash cans to find coupons people had thrown away, He even set up a store in his own house where he sold the items he'd bought with them. Although Michael was doing okay at school, he knew he'd never want to go the academic route. What he really wanted to do was make enough money to get away from Liverpool and move to London. So at 16, he left school and took a job selling food door-to-door for a large candy company. Before long, he was the most successful member of the team and quickly made his way up the ranks. He loved being a salesman, connecting with the customers, perfecting his selling routine, and getting praise from his bosses. At just 17, he was promoted within the company and was able to move out of the family home and into the city of London. Over the next three years, he built a good life for himself. He made lifelong friends and he met a woman called Nancy, who would later become his wife. At the age of 20, though, Michael was ready for a change. He had been working for the same candy company for the last three years, and he felt that job had given him all that it could. He decided it was time to look for a new, more challenging position elsewhere. Combing through the job ads in the newspaper one day, he saw that Olympus was hiring. He'd always associated the firm with cameras, but it seemed that they also made endoscopes, medical devices which doctors used to see inside the body without surgery. They were looking for salespeople to help them promote these products. Michael was fascinated and applied for the job on a whim, assuming he wouldn't have the medical background they needed. But to his delight, he was welcomed on board. Right away, his bosses saw Michael's potential. And over the next few years, he flew up the corporate ladder. These were golden days for Michael. He married Nancy, continued to rise up the ranks of the company, and at the age of 29, he was even put in charge of European operations. A decade passed, then another. He and Nancy had two kids together. They bought a grand, beautiful home out of London by the sea. He made more and more money, and the poverty of his childhood became a distant memory. One perk of his job was that he got to travel all across Europe, the U.S., and most excitingly, Japan, where Olympus was based. Japan was a revelation. Each time he visited, he fell in love with the country a little more. He loved the scenery, how orderly everything was, and everyone was so polite. He started to build strong relationships with the top team there, including the president of Olympus, Tsuyoshi Kikukawa. While Kikukawa was, to many people, an intimidating and traditional man, he had become, over the years, something of a fatherly mentor to Michael. Michael loved his job at Olympus, but as he made his way up the ranks, 
he'd noticed that tiny cracks were appearing in the business. He started to suspect that Olympus wasn't doing as well as it would like. This was confirmed in November 2010, when President Kikukawa asked Michael to fly to Japan and visit him at his office in Tokyo. Inside his light and airy office, with its views of the sprawling city, Kikukawa greeted Michael and asked him to take a seat. The truth was, he explained, Olympus was struggling. While the European side of things was doing well, the rest of the company was not. The camera business in particular was tanking. Olympus was in a lot of debt. In fact, it was well on its way to being the most indebted company in Tokyo. Michael was quiet. He hadn't realized that things were so bad. But there were more surprises to come. Michael, Kikukawa said, I would like you to be our next president. He explained that he himself had been unable to change the company, but he believed that Michael could. Michael was stunned and honored. Kikukawa had been at the top of the company since 1999. It was unlike him to show weakness like this. And it was very rare for a foreigner to be asked to run a Japanese company, especially a foreigner who'd left school at 16. Michael thought about the offer for a few moments. He knew that this would be an immense task. But then again, Kikukawa believed in him. And Michael loved a challenge. After a few seconds of thought, he found himself agreeing. Yes, he said, I'll do it. That night, back at his hotel, he called his wife, Nancy, who did not welcome the news. We've got a good life already, she said. Why would you want to change that? As president of Olympus, he'd have to spend much less time at home and much more time in distant Japan. But he told her he owed it to the company to help them dig their way out of debt. He had to do this. And so, five months later... On the 23rd of March, 2011, Michael found himself on a plane from London to Japan. He'd made the same journey to attend meetings dozens of times over the years. But this time, it was different. He would be moving into a chic apartment in a wealthy part of Tokyo and living there permanently. He was going to miss his wife, his 18-year-old son Edward, and his 16-year-old daughter Isabella. But Edward was about to start university. And Isabella had enrolled at a boarding school. It wasn't a good time for them to move to Japan. Michael planned to work long hours, seven days a week, and travel home to the UK every other weekend. At the Tokyo office, the rest of the company seemed pleased to have him, including the shareholders. The fact that he was a foreign, or in Japanese, gaijin chief, meant that he was something of a celebrity in the international business world. He soon realized that his appointment made the company look good. It was a forward-thinking move for a forward-thinking company, and he was delighted when the Olympus stock price rose sharply when his presidency was announced. He soon got to work trying to figure out what was wrong at the company and how to deal with these debts. But almost immediately, he hit a roadblock. He realized that while his mentor, Kikukawa, had handed the president title to him, 
He had also created a new Western title of CEO, which he had bestowed upon himself. He was also still chairman of the company. And while Kikukawa reassured Michael that as president, he was in charge, it didn't seem like it. Michael began to notice that there was another, more widespread issue. There is a saying in Japanese, the nail that stands up gets knocked down. Meaning that those who put their heads above the parapet and go against the top dogs will be flattened. He realized that for years, the people in the company had gone along with the decisions of the previous president without questioning anything. Nonconformists were certainly not rewarded in Japan. Perhaps this explained how Olympus ended up in so much debt. It wouldn't be easy, but Michael was determined to change things. He planned to hire more women and young people. He got rid of oval conference tables and brought in round ones to encourage people to speak up in meetings. He created a new worldwide management team and came up with a cost-cutting program. He was making steady progress. But then he hit another roadblock, one that was much bigger than the last. In June 2011, two months after his move to Japan, Michael was attending a meeting with the Olympus team in Hamburg, Germany, when he received an email from a friend of his. In the subject line were the ominous words, urgent news. The email included a link to an article in a small, investigative Japanese business magazine called Facta. The magazine was making worrying allegations about Olympus. It claimed that the company Michael had just become president of was involved in fraud to the tune of over a billion dollars. As Michael read the article, his heart started beating fast. The magazine claimed that an anonymous insider had told them that Olympus was in trouble. The company had made some unusual investments that had raised suspicions. They had bought hopeless, unprofitable businesses for way more than they were worth. Having discovered this, the magazine had done some digging to find out why. It seemed that for the last 20 years, while Michael had been working there, Olympus had been using illegal accounting tricks to cover up devastating losses. It all started way back in 1985. At that time, Olympus was struggling to make ends meet. Camera sales were down 10%, and a lot of their business was overseas, which was a problem because the Japanese yen was much stronger than the American dollar. So they were losing money on a majority of their sales. To boost their income, the company decided to borrow some money from banks and invest it in other Japanese companies on the stock market. They hoped that this could make them a little extra money and tied them over while they waited for the exchange rate to improve. The problem was that Olympus was not the only Japanese company doing this. In fact, at the time, as many as half of all reported profits in the country were coming from stock market investments not product sales. And because all of these Japanese companies were investing in each other, the prices of their shares were being pushed up and up, creating a bubble. When this bubble inevitably burst in 1990, the value of everything plummeted. 
including the value of Olympus' investments. While many other companies cut their losses at this point, Olympus made the fateful decision to double down on their stock market scheme. Like a desperate gambler at a casino, they started throwing whatever money they could get hold of into short-term, high-risk investments. They hoped that eventually they would strike lucky and win back their lost money. But they never did. And there was more trouble up ahead. As a public company, Olympus was required to publish its finances. But they knew that if the losses were listed in the public accounts, existing shareholders would panic and new shareholders would stay well away, sinking the company. And so instead of coming clean, they decided to hide their losses with a series of clever accounting tricks. For a few years, this was easy. Because according to international financial reporting standards, investments could be listed at the purchase price, not their actual current value. This meant that, on paper, all of the investments they'd bought during the bubble looked healthy. But in 1998, the guidelines changed. Olympus was going to be forced to list investments at their current market value, and the investors would finally see how bad things were for the company. It was at this point that Olympus's actions changed from ill-advised to illegal. They decided they needed to get rid of their worthless investments before the investors caught on. To do this, they created inactive shell companies and took out large bank loans in their names. They then sold Olympus's dud investments to these shell companies at the high price that they had originally bought them for, canceling out the losses on Olympus's books. While the shell companies were a stopgap, the Olympus chiefs knew that eventually the debts of these new companies would trace back to them. They couldn't run away from their problems forever, but they could try to minimize the fallout. And so, instead of announcing the losses in one fell swoop, they decided to announce them bit by bit over the next 20 years. It's here that Olympus's plan got even more complicated. Too complicated to go into fully in this episode, but the gist of it is that Olympus started deliberately buying a selection of real companies for far more than they were worth. Here's why. In accounting, if an asset like a purchased company, for example, does not bring in as much income as expected, the difference between its purchase value and its actual value can, in some instances, be written off over time. It's called goodwill amortization. Olympus hoped that this write-off would, over the years, gradually add up to the value of their original losses, balancing the books. Unfortunately for Olympus's chiefs, some of their employees thought this looked a little fishy. Which leads us back to June 2011 and the FACTA article. An anonymous whistleblower from Olympus had taken notice of these shady dealings and contacted the magazine, telling them that hundreds of millions of dollars had been spent on three wildly unprofitable companies totally unrelated to Olympus's business and that a fourth purchase had cost $700 million in consultancy fees alone. In his hotel room in Hamburg, Michael quickly Googled to see if any other outlets had picked up Facta's story. 
but none had. The investigative magazine had a fairly small readership, and it seemed that the bigger, more mainstream papers were steering clear of the allegations, for now. He knew that if what the article was saying was true, soon everyone would know, and the company's reputation, along with Michael's, could be ruined. Michael flew back to Japan as soon as he could. He was desperate to get to the bottom of the magazine's accusations. Back at the office, he asked two trusted colleagues if they'd seen the article. They admitted that they had, but had been told by the CEO, Kikukawa, not to mention it to Michael. He decided he had to confront the CEO. After avoiding his calls, Kikukawa begrudgingly agreed to meet him that lunchtime, along with his right-hand man, Senior Vice President Satoshi Mori. When Michael entered the boardroom, his colleagues welcomed him cordially, as usual. But there was a slight chill in the air. The blinds were drawn, making the wood-paneled room all the more gloomy. On the table before them was a platter of the finest sushi, which everybody knew was Michael's favorite. But next to his place at the table was, instead, an unappetizing tuna sandwich covered with cling film the height of disrespect in Japan. The message was clear. He was being put in his place. Sitting down, Michael got out a copy of Fakta magazine. It was hard to read the expressionless faces of his colleagues. He carefully went over the allegations made in the article. Were they true? He asked. He was shocked when Kikukawa responded, some of them. Michael asked for an explanation and further details, but the CEO was evasive. Michael pushed harder, asking Kikukawa how on earth he could justify the worthless acquisitions and why hadn't he told him about them. He hadn't told Michael, he said, because he was so busy with the new role. He hadn't wanted to worry him with domestic issues. Michael turned his attention to Maury, the vice president, but he just stared into the distance. It was like talking to two brick walls. The meeting was over. Alone in his office, Michael wondered what on earth he had stumbled into. As president, he was officially responsible for the company's accounts, and he now knew that they were a mess. He had to get Kikukawa and the vice president out of the way so he could properly investigate the magazine's claims before it was picked up by the mainstream news media. But loyalty ran deep in the company, so it wouldn't be easy. And frustratingly, he was due to be out of the country for the next few days on vacation. His wife and kids had been after him for months to take a proper holiday. They'd booked 10 days on the Spanish island of Mallorca together. It felt like the worst possible time to go, but he couldn't let his kids down. And so he packed up his bags, plastered a smile on his face, and met his family at the luxury hotel. But even next to the crystal blue waters of the Mediterranean, Michael couldn't shake his worries. He tried to connect with his kids, but his phone rang endlessly. He argued with his wife and drank himself to sleep each night, waking up early in the heavy heat Questions swirling around his head. Back at work, after his 
disastrous vacation, Michael spent the next few weeks trying to talk Kikukawa and the rest of the board into investigating the allegations. He knew that they needed to act fast to save their reputation. But no matter what he said, he couldn't convince them. And it wasn't long before things got even more complicated. On the 21st of September, 2011, Michael found himself wide awake at 3 a.m. As he always did when he awoke in the night, he checked his emails. There was a new one from a friend. Facta magazine had published a second article. Michael quickly turned on the light and started reading. In this piece, the writer outlined further damning allegations against Olympus. They had followed the money trail to two shady companies registered in the Cayman Islands. And even more worryingly, they claimed there was a link between Olympus's dirty dealings and Yakuza, Japanese organized crime networks. Michael's blood ran cold. In the previous 10 or so years, there had been several cases in Japan where business executives like him had been found dead. Officially, they were suicides, but there were whispers that they'd actually been victims of something darker. This new article had upped the stakes. There was no time now for Michael to gently encourage Olympus to do the right thing. He had to act fast. He decided to write a formal email to the entire Olympus board. In it, he raised his concerns about the allegations and urgently requested information about the shady acquisitions. But he was doing more than just requesting information. He was creating a paper trail, acknowledging the potential fraud and calling out his suspects. The next day, he received a reply from the vice president. It was vague and dismissive, answering nothing. Michael wrote back immediately, saying that his questions had not been answered satisfactorily. He and the vice president went back and forth like this several more times until, eventually, Michael felt he was left with no choice. He decided to copy in the people at the top of Olympus's auditors, those not just in Japan, but in Europe, the UK, and the US, too. Now the cat was out of the bag, and no one could say he'd tried to quash the claims. Finally, Kikukawa and the vice president agreed to meet with him. When Michael arrived for the meeting, all of their previous civility was gone, and they were colder still when he asked an English colleague to join him as a witness. But Michael was firm. The company had to confront these issues, He said that they needed to bring in forensic accountants, and he asked to be given Kikukawa's CEO powers to get to the bottom of the fraud. Suddenly, the normal, calm, and composed Kikukawa snapped. Do you hate me? Michael responded that he merely wanted to be given the power to do his job and to begin the major cleanup that was needed. Kikukawa started shouting, but Michael would not be intimidated. Kikukawa had never been challenged in this way before. He was used to total subservience. He walked out furious. But by late afternoon, to Michael's surprise, Kikukawa seemed to have had a change of heart. Maybe he'd realized he had no other option. He came to Michael and told him he would do as he asked. The next morning, he said Michael would be made CEO and would be allowed to manage things as he liked. 
The old friend smiled and shook hands. Michael left the office feeling optimistic and relieved, but not for long. At the meeting the next morning, in front of a full house of board members, Kikukawa announced Michael's new title as expected. But then the rest of the board began to turn on Michael, and he realized he'd been led unwittingly into the lion's den. They were angry about his emails. One claimed Michael had known about some of the acquisitions all along, which he firmly denied. Another took issue with the fact he'd copied the auditors in. They said he should have kept company matters private. Michael had hoped that once he had full power, he could go about the investigation as he wanted. But clearly, loyalty in the company ran even deeper than he'd realized, and they weren't going to help. They'd closed ranks, and he felt completely alone. The hostility of the board pushed Michael to the conclusion that he had to go straight to the forensic accountants himself. He decided to commission Price Waterhouse Coopers to investigate, starting with a $700 million consultancy fee. He hoped it would give him a sense of the validity of FACTA's allegations. And it did. PricewaterhouseCoopers' report was concerning. In that one transaction alone, they found evidence of false accounting, financial assistance, and breaches of directors' duties on the board. They stated that Olympus must investigate the claims more fully to determine whether money laundering was involved. Michael wrote a final formal email to Olympus, urging Kikukawa and the vice president to resign immediately. He stated that following the report, their positions were untenable. Their resignations were necessary to contain the damage to the company's reputation. He held out little hope that they'd follow his advice and was surprised when, a few days later, he was invited to an emergency full board meeting. Perhaps they were going to do the right thing after all. At 9 a.m. on October 14, 2011, three weeks after the publication of the second FACTA article, Michael walked into the Olympus boardroom. Those gathered around him went quiet as he took his seat. He looked around and noticed that Kikukawa was late. This was highly unusual in Japan. Several uncomfortable minutes passed. When Kikukawa finally shuffled in, wearing his expensive suit, he stood at the front of the room and announced that the scheduled agenda had been canceled. The new agenda was to discuss the dismissal of Michael Woodford. In the boardroom, the dismissal went to a vote. Michael glanced anxiously at the people around him, but he knew what was coming. At Kikukawa's question, all hands were raised in favor of Michael's leaving the company. The vice president, Mori, was to replace him. Michael would still remain a director because under Japanese law, only the shareholders can remove a directorship, but he would have no real power. Michael was floored. He knew his dismissal would generate waves of terrible publicity for Olympus. This could only mean that they were scared of something far worse. Michael was instructed to pack up his things and leave the building. He went to his office and opened his safe, taking out some money, and most importantly, his name stamp, which was used to verify every letter he sent. He worried that in the wrong hands, it could be used to falsely endorse dodgy documents in his name. 
While he packed his things into a box, a colleague came in and curtly told Michael his apartment would need to be vacated by the end of the week. And he no longer had a driver, so he would need to take the bus to the airport. Michael was furious. He couldn't wait to get out of the building. He felt like his calling out wrongdoing had turned the company into bullies. But at least there was now nothing to stop him going to the press. Perhaps this was the only way to uncover the truth. Back at his apartment, Michael quickly packed a small bag and called the Japanese correspondent for the Financial Times, who he'd met before. He agreed to meet him straight away in a park nearby. Quickly, Michael told the journalist everything he knew and handed over pages and pages of documents he'd amassed over the last few weeks. The man was impressed. This was a major scoop. He promised he'd work into the night and get the story out there as soon as he could. Then Michael left the neighborhood he'd called home for the last seven months, took a bus to the airport, and boarded the next flight to the UK. In London, Nancy was waiting for him in arrivals, the Financial Times in hand. The headline read, Sacked Olympus chief had sought answers to over $1 billion in payments. Olympus's share price had fallen 18%. The story was all over the news. Michael's phone rang nonstop all the way home with interview requests. He might be home, but his work was far from over. The next few days were a blur of action. Michael went to the serious fraud offices in London to officially report the crimes he suspected had been committed. The police visited his home to reinforce the doors and seal up the mail slot. Armed guards kept watch 24-7, and the family's phones were connected straight to a response team. He did many TV interviews on UK and US TV, and he met with a lawyer who quickly contacted the ex-CEO Kikukawa, formally accusing him of being in breach of Michael's contract in dismissing him. The ball was rolling. But the drama had already taken its toll on Nancy. In the days after he arrived back, she woke night after night screaming, Michael, they're going to get us. And Michael was suffering too. He was self-medicating with sleeping pills, drinking too much, and struggling to sleep properly. But he knew he had to be strong. If he cracked up, his family would crumble. Back in Japan, Olympus was fielding questions from the press. The board maintained that Michael had been fired because he had acted against Japanese-style management. The vice president even suggested the company might take legal action against him. When asked about the Mickey Mouse companies, they claimed that they'd thought the companies were profitable. But that story made no sense. No one looking at those firms would ever think that. Meanwhile, their share price continued to plummet and the investors and shareholders began to lose faith. Eventually, Olympus bowed to relentless pressure and, seven days after firing Michael, finally agreed to a third-party investigation into its acquisitions. It was then that Michael received an anonymous email. Opening it with some hesitation, he saw that it was from the original whistleblower, the source for the FACTA article. They said they were worried about the danger from gangsters and so had to remain anonymous. But they praised Michael's courage. 
Michael felt sorry for this person who, like him, had risked everything to tell the truth. But unlike him, had no British passport, no escape route. They were trapped in Japan. The day after Olympus announced the third-party investigation, on Sunday the 23rd of October, the FBI opened an inquiry too. This was of global interest, after all. Olympus shareholders were from all over the world. Michael was relieved and quickly arranged for him and Nancy to fly to New York to talk to the agents. With the UK and US authorities both involved, surely the Japanese establishment had to act. At 3 a.m., the morning before his interview with the FBI, Michael got a text informing him that Kikukawa, his former mentor, had resigned. He would be replaced by another long-standing company executive, Shuishi Takayama. Olympus cited the slump in share prices as the reason for the resignation, but it was clear Kikukawa had been under too much pressure. Later, in one of the FBI's New York interrogation rooms, agents spent three long hours taking Michael's statement. They asked deeply probing questions, suggesting that they knew even more than he did. And Michael returned to the UK encouraged. The FBI was on it, and Kikukawa was gone. On the 31st of October, the Prime Minister of Japan himself even expressed disquiet about the rumors about Olympus. He didn't want foreigners to see Japan as a place of corruption or failing capitalism. Olympus were backed into a corner. And at long last, on the 8th of November, 2011, confessed to everything. Facta had been right all along. It seemed that Kikukawa, who had taken the reins of the company in 1999 in the midst of the fraud, had knowingly gone along with it all. As Michael read the confession, he was crestfallen. His colleagues' actions had been foolish and careless, but life must have been miserable for them, guarding such a secret. The fallout from the confession involved a further 30% crash in Olympus shares. The fact that the company had lied for so long was extremely damaging. There were immediate calls for the board to be replaced. The new president, Shushi Takayama, who had been with the company since 1970, claimed he had known nothing until now. There was still no solid evidence of the organized crime connection. But nine days after the confession, on November 17, 2011, the New York Times published a piece referring to a mysterious memo. The memo suggested that the Tokyo police were investigating claims that Olympus had worked with organized crime syndicates, including the country's largest, Yamaguchi Gumi. It suggested that the criminals had helped Olympus to obscure billions of dollars of investment losses, and that the company had paid them huge sums for their services. Although the authenticity of the memo could not be proven, the fact that a serious newspaper had published the claims was too much for Nancy. She was fearful for their safety and worried about the strain it was putting on their family. She begged Michael to stop getting involved in the story, to stay out of the press. But Michael was determined, even after everything he'd been through, to get Olympus back on track. He worried for the jobs and futures of all his ex-colleagues. 
Now everything was out in the open, perhaps he could lead Olympus again. He decided he needed to get back to Tokyo for the next board meeting. Whether they wanted him there or not, as a director, he was entitled to attend. Back in the capital, there were some positive developments. Many of Olympus's employees and shareholders publicly called for Michael to be reinstated as president. He said that if they wanted him reinstated, he would come back and work with them to help the company to recover and flourish. Michael left Japan on a high. His openness and honesty were a breath of fresh air to many in the industry, who hoped that the scandal would encourage a better culture in the future. On the 6th of December, 2011, one month after Olympus's confession, the independent panel investigating Olympus finally released its report. It pulled no punches. It revealed that losses peaked at $1.7 billion and confirmed that Kikukawa had approved the cover-up. The judge at the head of the inquiry said that Olympus was rotten to the core. He said it should remove its malignant tumor and literally renew itself. Michael felt vindicated, and he was happier still when, a couple of weeks later, on the day before Christmas Eve, the British newspaper The Independent named him Business Person of the Year. Three other newspapers followed suit with similar accolades. But on Christmas Day, Michael was feeling melancholy. While the confession and the independent inquiry had helped clear things up, he knew the fight was not over. He was still waiting for the outcome of the investigations run by the Tokyo Police Force, the FBI, and London's Serious Fraud Office. And he'd hoped that after the report came out, he'd be able to step back into his old role as president. He had support from Olympus shareholders and employees, after all. But he was struggling to reach an understanding with the board members. And the new president, Takayama, was refusing to even meet him. It was Nunsi who hit Michael with the hard truth. Going back to Olympus was an impossible dream. While middle management might be encouraging, his old colleagues at the top of Olympus would never welcome his return. He had done what was right, but he had been disloyal and was now outside the pack. After the holidays, Michael returned to Japan and, with a heavy heart, withdrew his request to be reinstated as president. At a press conference afterwards, Michael was treated as a hero who had changed Japan for the better. He then packed up the rest of his belongings for good and returned to the UK. On the 16th of February, 2012, former CEO Kikukawa and former Vice President Mori were arrested for suspected violation of Japan's Financial Instruments and Exchange Act. A few days later, Kikukawa was formally charged with inflating the company's net worth. Eventually, Kikukawa and another executive were sentenced to three years in prison, and Mori was sentenced to two and a half. When he heard the news, Michael felt no sense of satisfaction, just a deep sadness that it had come to this. In the meantime, Michael began a new life, traveling the world talking about the Olympus scandal and the lessons that could be learned from his experience. But there was something nagging at the back of his mind. 
Michael had always wanted to meet the original whistleblower, who he believed still worked at Olympus. And in 2012, he finally got the chance. The journalist who had written the FACTA articles arranged a clandestine meeting for them. On meeting the whistleblower, Michael, overwhelmed with emotion, hugged this brave individual. After an intense conversation over some beers, in which they shared their hopes, fears, and mutual admiration, Michael watched the whistleblower walk off down the street and disappear into a crowd. He, or she, was once again anonymous on the streets of Tokyo. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Michael Woodford, amongst the many sources we used, we found Rupert Neat's Guardian article, The Man Who Blew the Whistle on Billion Dollar Fraud, and Michael Woodford's book, Exposure, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable, Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Catherine Dyson and Alice Homewood. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. Hold up. 